Thanks for tuning in to the IGM podcast. We're so glad you've decided to explore God's word with us. We look forward to connecting with you in email at infointegritygm.com or online at our website, www.integritygm.com. We hope this podcast encourages you to grow in the knowledge of God through his word. Be blessed. Blessings to everyone today in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. Today we're going to be looking at the prophet Yoel or the prophet Joel. We have already finished covering the prophet Obadiah. And from a historical standpoint, when we look back to Obadiah, Ovadia, and Joel, we're looking at from a traditional dating, the first two chronologically written prophets. There are more prophets than the writing prophets, but from the writing prophets, traditionally, Obadiah was written around 845 B.C. and the prophet Yoel around 830 B.C. Both of these prophecies, when you look at the message, you don't necessarily have to know the background of what is taking place in order to understand the prophecy. It's a little bit different than, say, if you're studying Jeremiah. Because here we see these general truths that are coming forth, even though we don't know for sure exactly what is happening in the historical context, the message is very clear. In Obadiah, which is speaking against the Edomites that we believe was in the 9th century B.C., and also the prophet Joel in the 9th century B.C., as we're looking at the day of the Lord. Now, both of these prophets began talking about the day of the Lord. Obadiah being the first prophet to talk about the day of the Lord, and now Joel is going to be talking about the day of the Lord as well. As we look at these prophecies, let's go through these prophecies and try to understand what is being said, what is the flow of thought within the text itself, and then see, after we understand what it meant at that time as far as the message, then let's apply it to our lives today. The name Yoel means the Lord is God, and the name Obadiah is the servant of the Lord. And when we look at this prophecy of Joel, he is writing to Jerusalem, to Judea, He's writing to the Jewish people, and we're seeing this in the context of the southern kingdom. Also, Alan just asked me a good question about what do I mean by the writing prophets? Where there are more prophets in the Old Covenant scriptures than just Obadiah and Joel and Jonah and Amos, Hosea. There are other prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Gad and Nathan, different prophets, but they did not have a letter or a book that ended up in the canon of Scripture. And so that's what I mean by the writing prophets. And so here we look in the writing prophets. You have Obadiah, then you have Joel. After this, we're going to go to Jonah, then Amos, then Hosea, and then we're going to continue. So we're looking at these prophets from a prophetic standpoint chronologically. Also, in our English Bibles, sometimes they're separated from the major prophets and the minor prophets. That's just categories. And many times that is understood by the length of their written prophecy. But there's not really a major prophet or a minor prophet in the sense that one is more important than the other. And when we look at the prophet Yoel, how powerful his prophecy is, even though it's only three chapters 
as we designate as three chapters. The prophecies that we're dealing with here, many of them are yet to be fulfilled. I believe that we saw the beginning of the fulfillment of the prophecies of chapter 2, verses 18 through the end of the prophecy at the day of Pentecost, the day of Shavuot. However, that is the beginning and not the complete fulfillment of what the prophet Joel prophesied about, a day where all flesh will experience a day in the Spirit, the coming of God's Spirit upon all flesh. Now, Alan, let's look at chapter 1, and I always call on you to read, but I would like to read the first chapter, but setting the context of this first chapter is a call to repentance, or it's a call that we're going to see in chapter 2 for a national repentance because of a natural calamity and disaster that has come to the nation of Israel or to the southern kingdom. And so I want us to read this, and I believe this is, we're going to take it literal, that these are locusts that have come into the land, devastated the land, the agriculture, and there is devastation before them and more devastation to come. In this context, even whether it fits in the 9th century B.C., 8th or 7th century, what we're looking at is a call to repentance because of this natural calamity that God has caused to come into the land. So let's read chapter 1. All right, Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and, it's, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare, and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin, girded with sackcloth, for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under their clods, the storehouses are desolate, 
the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Thank you, Alan. And as we look at this first chapter, it really saves me a lot when Alan reads. Uh, it really, And he does a good job at reading. When we look at this first chapter, as I look at it, I see something that has already taken place, past tense. But at the same time, when you get to verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near, it's not over with. And what I believe what is taking place as these locusts have come in in waves, it's not stopping. When you live in the Middle East, like I have lived in the Middle East, you understand you have to deal with locusts in the Middle East and North Africa and different places and how devastating that this can be to the agriculture of the land when locusts come in. But this is in waves. You understand this, that it's bringing about total devastation in the land. When you go to verse 2, he's calling for everyone to listen to this prophecy or to listen to this call to repentance because it's leading to this call to repentance. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's day? Tell your sons, verse 3, about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. Write this in the history books. Never forget what has happened during this time. And he's calling everybody. By calling the elders, elders is a general term representing the spiritual leaders in the land. But he's calling all of them to listen, and he will interpret this natural calamity, this destruction of the land and the agriculture in the land as God's judgment coming against God's people. We have said it many times, and Alan and I have talked about it recently, not every natural calamity that comes means that it's the judgment of God. I live in Alabama today. We get tornadoes every year. There's hurricanes that come on our coast, on the Gulf of Mexico. Some places in the world have earthquakes. We can go on and on for different devastations that happen within nature. That does not mean that every single time that is the judgment of God. Some of it is just nature itself and things that happen within nature. But there are times in which God is directing these things, and you can see the hand of God a part of this And this is what the prophet Joel is saying. Have we ever seen anything like this? This is not just a seasonal thing that's taken place where we're invaded by locusts. This is wave after wave after wave that is coming against us, and everything is going to be devastated within the land. He is seeing the hand of God in this judgment, and he sees 
this coming of the locusts as God doing this? And at any time, Alan, jump in if you want to say anything concerning that. Yeah, I was just thinking about this, and we discussed this a couple days ago about Joel, but he was one of the one of the prophets that no one really gave any pushback to, you know, where Jeremiah was imprisoned, hole in the ground, his family wanted to kill him. A lot of the other prophets received a negative response from the people, where Joel, there's none of that writings or none of that through history that you see, because I think this, what happened with these locusts was such an awe and a shock to the people of Israel at that time. I mean, they never seen anything like it, like you that, said. That's a good point, Alan, because who's going to debate what's going on right now? Yeah. And in that culture, that time, they understood very clear, they're not living in a Western mindset that tries to explain everything away that this is just a natural thing that happens. They saw the hand of God in it. Are they really going to come and debate the prophet Yoel and say, no, this is not God's doing? Yeah. So I agree with you fully on that. Yeah, and I think just from the opening, you know, he's calling the leaders, he's calling the inhabitants, he's calling out the leaders first and saying, you know, the elders, you know, lead by example, hear this, listen. So he really had everybody's attention because of this calamity. And we've talked about it before, you know, sort of this wake-up call to the nation of Israel where now it's it's such an awe and shock. The beasts of the field are gone. The grain, everything's swept away. So they're in a real position to say, what is God saying to us through this? You know, yes. and, and they need him. And sometimes... And starvation's God, going to come. Yeah, starvation. So sometimes, you know, like you mentioned, not all natural disasters, but this one in particular was such an awe and shock to the people that they were just waiting to hear what the Lord was going to say about it because of the devastation and the calamity. So they were in a really sort of soft, supple place to listen right now. And then Joel comes forth and speaks what the Lord's trying to say to them. Right. And they're a different context than we are here, say, in America in 2020. We're dealing with our own disaster right now that has hit the world with this coronavirus. But they are, are a people in a covenant relationship with God as a nation that has been put together for the purpose of being a witness to the world of the knowledge and the faithfulness of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So they're living in a covenant relationship with God, and now they're faced with starvation, and they truly respect the prophetic voice. We're living in a day with secular humanism, People within the church, many of us, when we see this happening around the world today, we try to understand it through a biblical perspective and try to ask the question, what is God doing or what is God allowing to take place in this world? And one thing that we see is how fragile the world is and how they everything seems to be okay. And like you said, when we were discussing it in two weeks' time, everybody's living in fear. Mm-hmm. Here is a people, a nation set apart for the purposes of God to bring light to the world. And now devastation is taking place and the prophet Joel is prophesying and they're listening. And it's different from the time of Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. It's different than some of the other prophets who were rejected over and over and over again because there's not anywhere else they can turn. Yeah. Now, we live in a secular society. They're not turning to God. In fact, if you called this nation, the nation of America, to repentance and said this is God's doing, they would probably there'd be so much anger and hatred that would come your way because of that message. 
But that's not really the context that is taking place here. You don't see a negativity towards this prophecy within these writings. Mm-hmm. Also, something that's very important, we're really not dealing with specific sin that is mentioned throughout this whole prophecy. The only place that we see something that is mentioned is, let me look at it again. Um, verse uh, 5 right Verse there. 5, awake drunkards and weep. Drunkenness, we know, is not right. We should never be in a state where we're losing our control of our mental capacities and to our motor skills and things of that nature. So we know being drunk with wine is not of God. But through this whole prophecy, that's the only thing that is mentioned as a specific sin. So you're not dealing with idol worship. You're not dealing with immorality or bribes in society as you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and you look at uh, Ezekiel, you look at Daniel, and you look at all of these prophecies. Look at Zephaniah. Look at the sin of the people and how descriptive it is about the sin of the people. In Isaiah, there's none that is righteous, not even one. He goes on to describe the people, that their righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And the description of their sin is is very specific of what they're doing, but you do not have this in this prophecy. So one thing, Alan, that comes out in my mind, why is this taking place? What is God trying to do? And the only thing that really comes to my mind, there there might be a complacency Mm -hmm. that has come within the people of God that their lives and their nation is not about God, but there's a real complacency that has set in spiritually among the people. Yeah, and I think like you mentioned earlier, you know, this was this was God's chosen people. They were in a covenant relationship with him. They had seen his protection. They had seen him defeat their enemies in a supernatural way time and time again. So it's almost like they had this comfortable, well, we're God's chosen people, the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth is with us. Who can be against us? And yeah, and they could sit in that sort of, you know, we're just going to keep doing day-to-day things like we always have. And then you can kind of forget that you serve this holy and this awesome God. And I think you can sort of get complacent in that protection that you have from him and that protection that they had. And then this big event, it's almost like, wow, this can really come out from under us. And however long this locust took, maybe it was a day or two, maybe it went over a week's time, but everything's gone. Everything happened so fast, just made them realize how fragile life and, and their existence really was and it's saying God God's protected us but it can go in a second yes and I believe they're still in the midst of this Mm -hmm. it has come and it's not stopping and in the midst of this he is saying the day of the Lord is near it has taken place but it is coming and then later on I believe we're going to go to a time at the end as well that the prophet Joel starts prophesying towards the end of time It's waking them up. Look at some of the verbs. I think in the same way that you're thinking, complacency has set in. Look in verse 2. Hear this, O elders. Go to verse 5. Awake. Verse 8. Well, like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Then you continue over. Verse 11. Be ashamed. Verse 13. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Verse 14. Consecrate a fast. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. All of these verbs, I believe, action verbs, are saying, wake up. 
There's time to take action. And maybe the people were asleep spiritually at that time, and God was getting their attention. And I praise God when God sends something that gets our attention, because human nature is to be comfortable where you are, to forget about God when everything is okay. And because God loves us, he wakes us up. And sometimes he wakes us up by allowing things or sending things through natural calamities into our paths where we began to look up to God again. And this is what the prophet Joel is doing. He is seeing the hand of God in what is taking place, and he's going to describe this army as God's army coming in. And so God is using these locusts to wake up the people in Judah, the people in Jerusalem, to begin to cry out to God again. And sometimes we need that. Yeah, and I I think just kind of applying a a life and biblical principle out of this to to our lives is, you know, like you mentioned, not every natural disaster or calamity or bad thing that happens per se is God sending it down. But anytime those do happen, I think we can all take an inward look and say, God, what are you trying to speak? And then turn to repentance and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that I need to look at that I need to, to put in check in my heart? And what are you trying to say to me? And and always kind of be open to that when something negative or maybe it's not the best circumstance yes. in our life. Because we're always looking at what, what did somebody else do? Yeah. What did the nation do? But the prophet Joel is calling the whole nation, all of the inhabitants of the land, to come and repent before God. In verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. There's not even anything left of the vineyards in order to bring a drink offering, and the grain has been destroyed. So the ministers are not even able to bring these offerings and present them to minister unto the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem. When you go to verse 13, it's not just the elders, a general term, but he's coming to the priests. Now the priests are the ones, the Levites, that serve in the temple in Jerusalem. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priest. Well, O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. There's not anything to present and minister unto the Lord. And what do they need to do? They need to cry out unto God. The priest who are elders... When you look back at the spiritual leaders, you look at the priest, you look at the prophets, and you look at the monarchy, the kings. But the elders are all called, and here specifically the priests who are to minister unto the Lord within the temple in Jerusalem, they are to cry out to God and mourn for what has taken place within the land. So they're not to look at other people. It's so easy for us to say, well, look what they've done that's caused this calamity that's come upon all of us. But the prophet is saying, oh, priest, you begin. You start the, the beginning aspects of repentance before God for what has taken place in the land. It's kind of opposite of how it is today. It is the ministers that call the people to repentance. But here the prophet is calling the priest first to repentance. Verse 14, consecrate a fast, proclaim a sacred assembly or a solemn assembly. 
gathered the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out unto the Lord. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near. We see this is something that has happened. It has brought destruction, but the day of the Lord is near. It is also something that is coming in the future. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I cry. So the only answer is us as a people to look unto God and to cry out to him and repent before God. Now let's go to chapter 2. We're going to do this a little bit different. We're, We're not going verse by verse, but hitting the main verses and the emphasis within every chapter. But in chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. Now it's going to go back to this consuming army that is coming. A day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. A fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. And we go on and get more description. Look at verse 9. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? So this is what I believe is taking place The natural calamity through these locusts has come in wave after wave, but it is still there. And the day of the Lord, which we have talked about in Obadiah, is a day in which God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish, and he sets everything straight. It represents the vengeance of God. It represents the judgment of God against wickedness and upholding those that have done what is right. Many people make the mistake of looking at the day of the Lord only at the end of time. There is the day of the Lord that is at the end of everything, but the day of the Lord in Obadiah was a day that God was going to bring judgment against the Edomites. And like when you said it was justice, was the day of God's justice. So that's judgment, you know, making things right, setting things right that didn't seem right. And I thought that was a good way that you put it that, that made sense to me. And, and they putting things right and God having the last voice and the final authority of what's going to take place. Amen. And the day of the Lord, people need to understand that at the end, on the day of the Lord, God's going to put everything right and establish his kingdom and his justice will rule and reign on this earth. So we don't fear the day of the Lord. 
if we're living a life of repentance before God. We should fear the day of the Lord if we're living in rebellion against God. And the prophet Yoel is calling them to repentance. That's the whole thrust of what is taking place here. And I want us to look at verses 12 through 17. These are so critical about a repentance that's not an outward, religious, traditional repentance, just going through the formalities, but a true repentance that comes from the heart. And Alan, if you don't mind reading these verses and listen to what the prophet is calling the people to do. Joel chapter 2, we'll start at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber, let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. What should they among the people say? Where is their God? Yes, why should they say among the peoples? Why should they among the peoples say, where is their God? Look at this. Some things I want to emphasize. This is a repentance that's coming from within side. It is something that is genuine. It is something that is honest. And it appeals to the character of God. Those that know the character of God do not run away from God, but they run to God. Those that truly do not know God's character, those that truly do not know God's character run away from God. But if you know that God is a God of grace, a God of compassion, a God that is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil, why would you not run to him? Why would you run away from him? When you know the character of God, like the prophet knows, he's calling the people together to have a sacred assembly and to cry out to the Lord because he knows the character of God. Now, the next book that we're going to study chronologically is Jonah. Jonah runs away from the call of God on his life because he knows his character. The reason why he does not go to Nineveh, because he knows the character of God. He knows that if the Ninevites cry out to God and repent, that God would forgive them. And Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. And as we go through Jonah, this will be very clear of why he ran away from God's call upon his life. Because he knew the character of God. As the people of God, if you know God, you know his mercy and his grace Why would you, during a difficult time, ever run away from God and begin to blame God and to say, God, I'm not going to seek you during this time? If you know God's character, we run to him. He is our refuge. We rest in him. Our peace is with him. Therefore, I'm not going to run away from him. He is my only help. 
And this is what the prophet understands. Yeah, and it's almost like he's saying in, in the word of the Lord, saying, you know, return to him because he is gracious and compassionate. It's a repentance because God wants them to repent so he can show his grace. He can show his mercy, not only to them, you know, and at the end it says, why should they among the people say, where is their God? So it's this twofold repentance that's going to affect not only them as a nation, but it's going to affect other people. And, and he's saying, stop anything you're doing. You know, gather the nursing infants. If you have a baby, that's, that's not the most important thing. Bring them too. If you're going to get married, your wedding day, stop it right now. Cancel the wedding. Cancel, yeah. The most yeah. important thing is for you to get this right and repent so God can bless and have right. show mercy on you and also on the nations. And you're seeing totality here, a nation repenting before God. And the priests are to stand between the altar and the porch you had parts of the temple, you had the outer courts in which Gentiles could not come inside a certain barrier. Then you had the court of women, and only women, anybody could be there, but women could not go beyond a certain point. You had the court of where men could go beyond that point, but they couldn't go beyond some barriers because you had the court of the priest, and only priests, Levites, could go in there. And at the altar was in the center of the court of priests. And between the altar and the going into the holy place, not the holy of holies, only certain priests could go into the holy place. Between the altar and the porch, the priests are to stand there and cry out to God. And you almost get this understanding comes to my mind of standing in the gap and crying out to God for the whole nation. Because at that time, the priests were mediators. And so they're standing there crying out to God, leading in this act of repentance, standing between the altar where the sacrifices take place and before you go into the holy place there, standing there as almost like one man crying out to God for the nation. This was more important, like you said, than your wedding on that day. It's more important than taking care of your children. Gather your infants and bring them with you. Let's come together. Let's cry out to God because we know the character of God, and God is always wanting repentance. He never rejects repentance. I don't know if I've ever seen anywhere in the Bible, I cannot think of anywhere right now when someone truly repents from the heart that God would reject that. Not even David, who should have been stoned and killed because he committed murder and adultery and should have, according to the law, been killed. He cries out to God, and God forgives. And he says, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. And so they know God's character, and I like how you said this is twofold, not just for them, but that they could have a witness to the peoples, the nations, plural, that would see God bring healing and deliverance to the land instead of destruction. Yeah, and it's, it's incredible, again, to, to see God's heart where, where it says, you know, in verse 13, he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. And, you know, in the next part, when we talk about this, we'll see what, what this is going to mean, you know, in the verse 18 um, to the end of it. But what I see him really saying is, do this now. This is so serious because I want to bless you and I want to do these things through you and for you. Um, you know, and it's not an upset, you know, repentance. You know, God's not sitting up there mad, ready to come down and, you know, fire bolts and lightning. He's saying, repent because what I want to do for you and what I want to do through you for the nations, um, which we know, you know, Messiah and Jesus um, is going to come forth through Israel. 
But it's, yeah, it's just get this right now. Stop what you're doing because I love you, I care about you, and I want these things for you that we'll see, you know, later right. on in the book. Right. And based upon a national repentance. Now, we do not know what happened here. We, don't, we really do not know the response of the people. But based upon a national repentance of the Jewish people, Judah and Jerusalem, there will become promises to them of what God's going to do. And based upon that repentance, we're going to see the outpouring of God's Spirit. Based upon that repentance, we're going to see Judah never being destroyed again like this. And we're going to go through that in the, in the future. We're going to end right here and talk about this national repentance that God is doing through the prophet Joel to the Jewish people at that time. And we're going to talk about this prophetically of how we're moving from that time to the time of Peter, which is beginning what I believe the fulfillment of this prophecy all the way to the end. Praise God for this. How do we look at this, Alan, for today? Repentance is something that I believe is a daily act on our part. You say, but I'm not living in sin. But remember what Isaiah said at the end of his life. To this one I will look, one who is humble, one that lives a life of humility, one that is contrite in spirit, that is broken before God within their spirit, and one that trembles at my word. So when I talk about a lifestyle of repentance, what I'm really talking about, it doesn't necessarily have to be that I'm living in sin and I'm repenting out of that and coming back to God. But it's a state of being humble before God in an understanding of being broken before God, always contrite in spirit and trembling at God's word. God, I want to live according to your word in my life. So we come to God through repentance. We stay humble before God. We stay broken before God. We stay in God's word and allow ourselves to hunger and thirst for righteousness within our lives. And in one sense, that is a life of repentance before God. Always broken before him, always humble before him, always trembling at his word. And I believe that discipleship can only take place as we die to ourselves and take up our own cross and follow the Messiah. That's in the context when I'm saying living a life of repentance before God. Now, this is calling for the nation to repent probably of their complacency before God, coming back because they know the character of God and humbling themselves, crying out to God, and allowing God to change them from the inside out. Repentance from the heart, rending their hearts and not their garments. That's what the prophet is calling them to do. And I believe we can do that on a daily basis of dying to ourselves and saying, God, everything in my life belongs to you and we follow you. Now, next time we're going to come back and look at the rest of the prophecy but read these words and allow God to minister to your life. If you'd like to learn more about IGM or have any questions about this podcast, feel free to reach out to us at info at integritygm.com and connect with us on Instagram at integrity underscore global and Facebook at Integrity Global Missions. 
If you like our podcast, please share it and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Have a blessed day.